Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. In 2009, Korean-American journalist Yuna Lee traveled to China. She was there to film a documentary about the plight of people who escaped North Korea in search of freedom. On the last day of her trip, Yuna and her team briefly crossed the border into North Korea to capture some footage, before quickly returning to Chinese soil. But North Korean soldiers had spotted Yuna and her crew, and the soldiers raced over to them and dragged them back into North Korean territory. Yuna and a fellow journalist were then carted around to two different locations before being blindfolded and taken to an army base. Being blindfolded was very scared because you can't really see anything. But when someone snatched out the blindfold, and I was looking at the uh, prison cell, and that just told me that everything is uh, going to the opposite direction that I wish to go. Yuna ended up being held captive for 140 days in North Korea. She was terrified and demoralized during her time there. But there was one part of her experience that surprised her. Before she moved to the U.S., Yuna had grown up in South Korea, where she'd been taught to view Northerners as the enemy. But that changed for Yuna during her time in North Korea, as she found herself building emotional connections with the people who were guarding her. There were some moments that we could connect on a human level. There were some commonalities that we could understand each other as parents, and then also understanding the Korean culture. And there were moments that we were able to make small talks that was really um, helpful during that detention. On today's episode, how finding humanity in your enemy can help you survive. I'm Maya Shunker, 
and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. In March of 2009, Yuna Lee said goodbye to her husband and four-year-old daughter in California and traveled to China for a two-week trip to make a television documentary about North Korean defectors. The crew included Yuna, fellow journalist Laura Ling, a producer, and a local guide, or fixer, as Yuna called him. On their last day of filming, they found themselves at the Tumen River, which flows between North Korea and China, and is a route that North Koreans use to seek freedom. Off in the distance, in North Korean territory, their fixers saw these so-called safe houses, where defectors would wait and hide before trying to cross the river into China. Yuna and her team knew it was a risky move to try and film the safe houses up close, but they also knew these houses represented a critical part of the escape route. So they followed their guide to the midpoint of the frozen Tumen River and crossed briefly over into North Korean territory. So after we get that footage, we quickly left. And we were in the middle of the river and walking back and continued to filming. And um, our producer, he shouted, soldiers. Two soldiers ran towards Yuna and her crew with rifles in hand. And we all ran as fast as we could to towards Chinese soil. And my fixer, who was running next to me, and asked me, are you filming this? And I thought, is it crazy? But then at the same time, you never know. So let me, let me film it because this is the scene that probably a lot of North Korean defectors are facing. So I flipped the camera and put under my arm and pushed the record and then ran. And our producer, uh, who was an avid runner, he disappeared out of my sight fast. And when I arrived in Chinese soil, I found Laura just knee on ice and then I just stopped running. So I asked, are you okay? And she said, I can't, you know, I can't feel my legs. So in a flash, didn't know what to do with uh, somebody who can feel her leg. And I knew that I cannot leave her alone there. And all these things in my mind, and then we were surrounded uh, by two North Korean soldiers. So so you find you find Laura on the ice, on her knees, unable to move, and you're now surrounded by North Korean soldiers. What happens after you're caught? So there were two small North Korean soldiers. One was guarding Laura, one was guarding me, and they both were determined to drag us back to North Korea. And I was fighting. I grabbed anything that in front of me not to be dragged. And at some point, he wanted to hit me because I was fighting against him. And he lifted his rifle. Back of his rifle was uh, pointing me. And so when I looked at him, and he was a young boy, maybe 17. And he, he wasn't hesitating to hit me. So I quickly told him that I'm going to get up and walk with you. So I got up and walked with him, and I saw Laura. And when I looked at her, she was unconscious on the ice. 
she was hit by the other soldier. And uh, I screamed her name over and over to wake her up. And she finally woke up. And I helped her and we got up and we both followed these two soldiers and crossed the river to North Korea. And what's going through your head at this moment, Yuna? Everything felt so surreal. Your mind was everywhere. And fear and worried and what's going on. And then and then it's silly, but I was hopeful too because some of the journalists sometimes talk to North Korean soldiers and then they write stories about it. So we knew about these things. So we were hoping that, oh, is it something that, bad incident, but they're going to send us back home. I don't know. Oh, what's in my mind? I just couldn't believe. I just couldn't believe what just happened. Like, it's not something that you can organize your thoughts and plan things. You just face every moment that comes to you. And it was more like, I need to be calm so that I can make our best decision or best reaction. So I, I think I was trying to be calm and I was trying to somehow find a human connection with them so that they won't be too brutal towards us. Can you say more about that? In what ways did you try to find human connection with them? They were actually, um, these boys were smoking um, while they're walking. And they offered me, do you want to smoke? I didn't smoke, but somehow I know that anything that's similar action that you do, they will have, uh, they'll feel comfortable. So I said, I'm going to, yeah, give me one. After Yuna and Laura were captured by these soldiers, they were moved to two different locations before being blindfolded and driven to an army base. What is the army base like? It was like a matchbox along box buildings with the gray color. And then they had an exercise yard in front of the building soldiers to practice uh, knife fighting. And we were taken inside for a short moment to an officer. And the inside looked like uh, a scene from World War II. Everything was so old in there, telephone, typewriters, everything was like you're, you traveled time machine to 1940s. Wow. You, you said to me that you were retaining some hope. You know, maybe we'll be okay. Maybe they'll let us, maybe they'll set us free. At what moment did you realize that wasn't going to be the case? Being blindfolded was very scared because you can't really see anything. But when someone snatched out the blindfold and I was looking at the uh, prison cell and that just told me that everything is uh, going to the opposite direction that I wish to go. And the cell was very small and it was maybe five by seven Maybe two others can lay down together, that small cell. And they put Laura and I into two different cells. And in there, 
there was uh, nothing, nothing but myself. And I was there for two nights, but it was a long two nights. And were you told what was happening? I mean, did you get, did anyone let you know what the state of affairs was? Well, Laura and I quickly decided we are not going to tell them they were from uh, television, cable television. We were going to tell them we're students studying film, and then we followed our professor, which is our another producer who disappeared. So we kind of made that story. I kind of joked with my another producer in the plane. If anything happened, we tell this kind of story. I never knew that I was going to use that story. And they were... They were interrogating Laura and me separate to get more information. Yuna's and Laura's stories did not completely match up. So they were immediately relocated to a secluded compound in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. There, they were isolated in separate rooms. North Korean government officials repeatedly questioned Yuna and Laura for months, with the goal of getting them to reveal the truth about who they really were and why they were there. Eventually, North Korea's tactics worked. In May of 2009, Yuna and Laura broke down and signed a confession. They were brought to trial three weeks later and sentenced to 12 years in a North Korean hard labor camp. Yuna was stunned by the verdict. When exactly they'd be transferred to the labor camp was still up in the air, but Yuna was paralyzed with fear about how she would survive her time there. That is the moment that I crash it and... At that time, everything, that all my hope, all my effort to put myself together just uh, just crash it. And I, I was so in panic mode and North Korean officers brought doctors to make sure that I'm not going to lose myself. Um, what did it look like for you when you lost hope? You know, North Korea gave me sleeping pills. I I didn't take any pills that they gave me, and I collected them. And that's the moment that I felt like I wanted to just take them all. And just, uh, I wanted to find peace. It was so, so hard to even breathe. And I wanted to find peace. And that's the moment that I really wanted to let everything go. But thankfully, you know, my, my daughter's face just uh, like passed by. Um, it, it flashed me in front of me. And then I felt that's a very selfish decision to make. So, so one more day, you know, one more day, someone wrote to me that it's one more day close to home. Don't think that. You are adding days in North Korea. It's one more day close to home. So I reminded myself that. So I thought, okay, maybe this is uh, the burden that I can handle. Still, Yuna continued to fear her eventual transfer to a hard labor camp. And she desperately missed her family back in California, her husband Michael and her four-year-old daughter, Hannah. She was rarely allowed to talk with them by phone, so she spent hours a day writing letters to Michael. Michael and I really lived everything to God, and then whatever, we, we just, uh, without talking to each other, we, 
we knew that we couldn't control anything, and then we're going to rely on God, whatever happened. Then we'll be okay. And Hannah was, uh, didn't know, we didn't tell Hannah that I was detained. She thought that I was on a business trip. But Michael thought that something, she knew something was wrong because he said she got up in the middle of the night and started to cry out of nowhere. Um, we did our best to, to protect Hannah at the time. Uh, she was only four? Yeah. Wow. So at one point, um, Laura says to you, look, Yuna, tell them that you have a daughter at home. I'll stay here instead. And, and you refuse. You're clearly an exceedingly loyal person, right? But I'm wondering, you know, in that moment, how do you weigh these competing loyalties in your life, right? You have loyalty towards Laura. You also have loyalty towards Michael and Hannah. You know, h- how do you think about that? It's such an incredibly painful and challenging position to be in. I... <sighs> I'm 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 grateful that you you know you're seeing this a really positive way, but I don't know. I I think I thought about it. I thought about why am I making those choices? Why am I not thinking about myself first, my family first? I always thought that. Um, my families are families always next to me, right? I always thought that they will be there all the time. So my priority was somebody who needed my help, not my family, because my family is going to be always there. And why am I putting so much attention to others and then you helping everybody else but my family? But I still don't know. I think it's because I cannot leave. If uh, I think about myself, I, you know, I, I abandon something or I abandon somebody else because of my my own selfish reasons. I cannot leave. I don't think, in under any circumstances, leaving Laura alone on the ice by herself. If uh, I escaped and then survived, I don't think I could have lived normal life. The guilty feeling. If Laura said, you go home, you have a child, I'll stay here. If I said, okay, I'm going to think about my family better and then leave Laura there by herself. I don't think I could have lived without any single day without guilty feeling. If I don't align with what I feel like what's right, then I would carry that burden with on my shoulders every day. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. 
I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Korean-American journalist Yuna Lee and her colleague Laura Ling were captured in 2009 by North Korean soldiers and had been sentenced to 12 years in a North Korean hard labor camp. The date for their transfer to the labor camp had not yet been set, so Yuna and Laura continued to spend their days in confinement in a secluded complex in Pyongyang. One thing that really moved me about your story is that you were surprised by the kindness that the people you met in North Korea showed you and that it violated your former assumptions given how North Koreans were portrayed to you growing up in South Korea, right? Um, can you tell us a bit more about Officer Lee, who was put on your case? I remember one time 
I was losing so fast in North Korea. I lost about 17 pounds. And um, I was, uh, I started small, but then, you know, losing 17 pounds was a lot at the time. But because of my stomach was so small that I couldn't take a lot of food at once. And you're a prisoner, so they will give you only three meals a day. And I couldn't eat a lot each meal. And I think he noticed that. He noticed that I couldn't eat a lot. And um, he asked if I'm getting enough meal. And one day he brought some bread and gave to me to eat as a snack. And the other time was after I was sentenced to 12 years at the North Korean court. Um, I was frightened. I think uh, that was a time that I dropped everything and then did not want to hang on anymore. I, it was almost like I, I wanted to just give up. And he wanted to somehow comfort me. And he took me outside of my confinement. And I told him I'm not going to survive in the labor camp for 12 years. And he said, we're not going to kill you. So he did his best to comfort me um, when he could. Yeah. Can you tell me about the, the two female guards and and the bond that you eventually developed with them as well? Oh, yeah. They were in young 20s, and um, one girl was studying English. She wanted to be a translator. And her dream was to be a translator because she wanted to tell the world how how amazing her country is. Not that bad that, like, you guys portrayed, and we have something good about our country. That's a, that was her dream. And she was uh, very curious about uh, some of the book that I received from home. And she wanted to have that book because she's studying English, right? So things like that, she go, she asked me if I, she can borrow that book. Of course, you know, I would just give to her the book. And so we did all those things uh, when people were not around us. And um, the other girl was a beautiful, she had a beautiful voice. She was a really good singer. Um, she sang, um, to my surprise, she sang Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On all the time. But honestly, I grew up propaganda towards North Korea, and then I thought that they don't want to do anything to do with America. Language, fashion, or anything, you know, art, culture. So I was actually very surprised that she was singing that song. And... One day I told her, like, you have a beautiful voice. You want to be a singer? And she said, no, I can't. And later I learned that to be a singer in North Korea, you have to have money, you have to have a good family background, all these things to be successful in singing career. So she probably did not have any of those things. So... I felt so bad for her. So every time I see her that I, I wanted to kind of uh, value her, you know, the value, you know, like, you know, how good she is and then how beautiful her voice is. And when she left that job the last day, I was really sick in my room, so I couldn't move. And she came to me and told me that I hope that you'll get better soon and then you'll be with your family soon. And that was our last conversation. 
Yuna was shown many small acts of kindness from the people she interacted with at the complex. They brought her treats like cherries and fruit juice and turned up the volume on songs they knew she liked. And Yuna was charmed by how curious they were about many aspects of life in America, including dating and one-night stands. We were talking about dating, and then she asked, like, is that really true? There's one-night stand exist. And then I, I laughed. And I laughed. <laughs> How did you guys even know? <laughs> That's not even... The, the, the country itself is so conservative in that culture, you know, dating culture. And then I thought that was really funny that they brought up. So when I said, like, I think so sometimes some people, it happens to uh, some people, not to everybody. And then they were like, oh, <laughs> you know, like a little girls. So I, I felt I forgot. I forgot that I was a prisoner at that moment. I felt like I was sitting in my high school classroom with my friends and talking about all these things. I think because of me, a prisoner, they were pretty in this job, right? 24-7, they couldn't go home. So they complained a lot about, I want to go home, I want to hang out with my friend, and I want to do this. At some point, I think they fell for me that, oh, she's the one who can go home. 5,000 miles from home than by herself. I heard she has a child. And they wanted uh, um, without showing too much because of our relationship is guard and prisoner. So they wanted to uh, show their kindness very subtle way. The guard did that when they're by themselves. Officer Lee did that when, you know, when someone wasn't around. So everything they do, the kindness, they did that when no one was around. At this point, August 2009, Yuna and Laura had been held captive for more than four months in North Korea and were waiting to find out when they'd be transferred to the hard labor camp. But unbeknownst to Yuna, former President Bill Clinton was on his way to North Korea at that moment to negotiate their release. And it was actually Officer Lee who tipped Yuna off to this fact, that hope was on the way and that someone very important was coming to see her. It was President Clinton. Oh, my God. You, it was, uh, I thought it was an angel standing. Um, and, you know, he has gray hair. And there was a big window behind him. So you can see, you can really see his face, but with a gray hair person, with tall guy, with a very generous smile, and then he opened his arms. So we ran to him, and um, he, he embraced us and asked us, are you guys doing okay? So he brought his personal um, physician with him. So he wanted uh, us to talk to the physician to make sure that we are physically okay conditioned to leave if he can make that happen. So he told us that he has one more meeting to go, but uh, he can't promise anything, but we, I want to make sure that you are physically okay. And Laura and I were like, we're okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're okay. <laughs> we can go. Yeah. I, I've watched the, the footage on YouTube, basically on loop, um, yeah. in which... You're getting off the flight and you reunite with Michael and Hannah. What's striking about the video it, it is that it is a complicated joy, right? I thought everything is going back to normal 
and then we remember everybody and hug each other and then you know that's what I was what I expected and when Hannah hesitant to come to me it really ached my heart so 140 days was a long time for this four-year-old girl she was just so confused by everything like seeing her mom after so long and you know seeing these old cameras and then people and then in front of airport and I asked her do you remember me it's mom it's mom I said in Korean and she nodded and then can you give me a hug and then she came to me and uh I do it's that moment just thinking about that moment still make me choke yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. So I, I I realized that it's been exactly 12 years since your captivity. And so in a counterfactual world, had you been in the labor camp for 12 years, this would have been the year that you were reunited with your your daughter, Hannah, right? Who's now 16. Is that right? Yeah. We, we talked about it, my husband and I talked about that. It would have been this year that we would be reunited if I didn't come home. And every moment is like whenever I give her a hug, whenever I, you know, bless her at night. And it's, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. And um think uh, we, without saying it, we knew it, how we are blessed to be together. Mm. You know, we've been talking about how during that period of your life, in the years leading up to North Korea, and then even in the days you were in North Korea, um, you were ruthlessly prioritizing others over yourself and and your family. And I want to know how that dynamic has shifted in your life, like how how that's changed for you, if at all. (laughs) It did. It did. It did. I put my family first before others. Now, I'm not very, I'm not going to say that I'm very good at it, 100%, I'm changing it. No, but I can, I can probably tell, share, I can share that, no, I think about my family a lot more, <laughs> a lot more than I used to be, and then I put them as a priorities. And I don't, for that matter, I don't have a guilty feeling when I do that yeah. anymore. So I'm very thankful. I will say that, you know, in learning about your story and, you know, first of all, the horrors of being detained in North Korea and all that came with that, one of the most painful moments for me was, it was just a small line in your book, but for some reason it really, um, it really moved me. You were saying that there was a night where you slept really well. And you felt so burdened by guilt because you thought, how dare I sleep well when my family is suffering back home? And I guess the reason that that meant so much to me is that um, it showed me like the depth of complexity of what you were dealing with on a psychological level. It's like you're both trying to minimize your pain to survive. But then anytime you feel a moment of joy or calm or happiness, you're saddled by guilt. You know, Maya, I still live in, live in that 
I cannot enjoy. I feel like I even after I, I came home, and then a lot of people pay attention to our stories, and you know, and I had a lot. I made a lot of friends who I never knew before, and all these uh, things that. They usually enjoy even birthdays or happy moments. I couldn't enjoy. I couldn't enjoy any happy moment because of that guilty feeling followed me from somewhere. And I, I was, uh, um, I was worried about what if, what if uh, anybody's, anybody's in pain, including, including the defectors who we met. So, so the moment that you want to, when you go through the moment that it's painful, you want to get out of it, right? You want to get out of that moment and you want to have some easy, easy time. But when I got out of that painful time and then I have a little bit of peace in me, then immediately that the guilty feeling mm. came to me to bother me. Have you been able to make progress on that, to feel that just like all the people you're trying to help out there, um, including your family, that you you too deserve happiness and peace? I am, I learn, I mean, I, I feel happy when I see my family is happy. But my emotions are very dry since then. I try to be happy. I try to tell myself that it's okay to enjoy it. It's okay. So I try to tell myself that. Mm. Your story makes me reflect on the fact that as people, we, we like to villainize whole swaths of, whole swaths of people, you know, whole countries. And a lot of people are victims of their circumstance. You know, it's very possible. Officer Lee didn't choose to be born in North Korea, right? It's possible that he's a really good-hearted human being who is in terrible circumstances. And in order to protect his family, he had to take this job. And from what you're describing, it seems like he brought as much humanity as he could to an otherwise really terrible position. You're, you're, you're so right. Not everybody's uh, have have that heart um try to be nice to your prisoner they they do not have to and some of them i could see that is a very bitter towards uh, us and south korea and then did not want to be nice at all so i appreciate that that even even that small kindness that i was able to receive during that harsh time you know, I've I've read a lot about your story and people are saying, oh, you know, they were nice because they were being manipulative or she feels Stockholm syndrome or whatnot. And I just don't buy any of that. I'm sorry. Like at the end of the day, we we as humans can be discerning enough to know when kindness is unnecessary, but people do it anyway. I guess I just get frustrated by that critique of your of your noticing humanity and others i find it lightly offensive honestly do we not want to see that humanity if someone's criticize it i do 
even even so, even if someone says uh, is that Stockholm syndrome, ten years later, eleven years later, I still remember that small kindness. I'm not saying that everything was so wonderful and it was peaceful. There were many 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 moments that I wanted to give up my life. Do we want to hold on that memory? No, I don't want to. I want to believe that we all have a human has all kind heart somewhere. They can we can bring it out. Then we will understand better. If you meet somebody on a human level, you have a better understanding. You have a better open heart to understand that person. And like North Koreans grew up propaganda towards uh, us. I did the same thing. We did not understand each other as human beings. And to me, North Koreans, to me now, are the people who I remember, who I interacted. They are the North Korean to me now. Before my experience, North Koreans were the ones that who I watched on news. Now I'm back to my normal life. I hate to forget about that, that the good side of human. Good human side. I hate to forget about it. It's so easy to forget and then focus on the news and then judge others by what you, the information you receive. So I try to remember that those people who I interacted, that's North Koreans. You know, we we gotta have that human interaction. We gotta see each other, and I think every human being has that good side of a. Humanity. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me next week when I talk to Dr. Dixon Chabanda a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe who is on a mission to help people in his community access mental health care. There weren't nearly enough psychiatrists and therapists to meet the need, so Dixon turned to a rather unorthodox group for help, grandmothers. I kind of realized that there was something in having an older woman who has wisdom and experience, you know, reaching out to help a young mother who is struggling with postnatal depression, with anxiety disorder, and just reaching out and establishing that connection that makes that person feel comfortable to make them feel that sense of belonging, that I am in a place where I'm being taken care of. That was really powerful. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our producer, and Mia LaBelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there, including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Lital Malad and Heather Fain. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. 
You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week. Well, I, ha- I have to just ask you, what is your relationship with Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On? <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you feel about the song? Can you even listen to it? You know, you know what? She, she fell in love with this song so much that she was singing over and over. And sometimes I wanted to close my ears like, oh, I need to be quiet. <laughs> The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I had this babysitter who was a chronic dieter. She would eat colorless, aromaless food, and she was sad all the time. That's Dr. Linda Shoup. She's an internal medicine physician who's done a lot of thinking about food. We're going to dive headfirst into food. How to eat better, yes, but also how to eat more joyfully. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.